I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to help you build a strategy for your startup idea. During our last episode, we talked about the Skeptical Startup, a framework that helps you build a business while you have a job. Based on downloads, people seem to like it. If you missed it, the goal for a Skeptical Startup is simple. It is $8,000 per month in revenue in 10 hours per week of work. This is for founders with full-time jobs who are trying to ensure the idea they're working on makes sense before they quit and that their transition from day job to startup is at least smooth-ish. The beauty of the Skeptical Startup Framework is that it's a natural deterrent for bad ideas. It is whisper idea bug spray. For example, if you plan to charge people 10 bucks a month for your product, that seems reasonable until the framework shows that you need 800 monthly customers paying you that $10 a month before you quit your job, which suddenly seems completely unreasonable for a bunch of reasons we got into last week. The framework forces you to lean into problems that create serious value. Problems that are urgent, painful, expensive, growing, and frequent for customers that are willing, eager, desperate to overpay you to solve them. Customers that can act as the foundation for your company. But even though I love it, $8,000 in 10 hours a week is a goal, not a strategy. And if you're going to start a real business, one with a moat, one that's hard to compete with, one with space above your head to grow, you need a strategy. People confuse strategies with goals all the time, but they are not the same. A goal is the place you want to end up. A strategy is how you get there, with the emphasis on you. Strategy is about your unique, differentiated value applied to the hardest problem that you face. Maybe one in 50 startups that we meet with has a coherent strategy. They are rare. A big reason is that the word strategy has lost its teeth. I've heard people refer to their growth strategy as social ads or influencer marketing and their product strategy as customer obsessed. The other day, when I asked a founder I just met about their strategy, they paused dramatically and said, quote, my strategy is that I will never, ever quit. When I tried to prompt them to give me an answer that wasn't total nonsense, they interrupted me to say, literally, never. I'll die before I quit. Cool. Obviously, none of these are strategies. They're just words, which is the problem. A founder running a startup without a strategy is like a child wandering around in a field chasing butterflies. So that's what we'll help you do today. We'll help you not chase butterflies. We'll put boundaries around what a strategy actually is and go through some examples of great and terrible strategy and help you come up with yours. We'll do this with a little help from my favorite book on the topic, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rumelt. I'll pop it in the show notes, and I couldn't recommend it higher. Specifically, Rumelt's framework for strategy will be helpful. It's based around a logical structure he calls the kernel, like popcorn. The kernel of a strategy contains three elements, diagnosis, a guiding policy, and coherent action. We'll go through each, and so that you can see it executed, we'll create a strategy for me to write a best-selling children's book in real time. Because why not? But before we get to that wholesome example, we've got to talk about a raunchy one. One of my favorite random examples of strategy that I have seen in a long time. 
Growing up, my sister had a friend who lived down the street. She was nice. I don't remember her all that well, but I do remember that she was a bit quirky. Anyway, the other day, my wife Ruby and I popped open Netflix after the little guy finally went down, and there she was, my sister's quirky childhood friend, front and center. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I'd known she was a comedian, but I didn't realize it was like this. Her startup special was number four on Netflix's top 10 most watched shows. The special itself is nearly an hour and a half long, and it is about a single sexual act. We're a family program, so I won't go into any more detail than that, but literally the entire show is about this one thing, relentlessly about this one thing, broken down into ludicrous, painfully hilarious detail. There isn't a single joke that's off topic. As we were watching, my wife asked if it was weird that I'd known this person when we were kids. Her older brother used to babysit me, but it wasn't at all mostly because I couldn't get over how freaking brilliant her strategy was. Strategy is about identifying the biggest challenge you've got to navigate to be successful and then building a unique plan to tackle it that leans into your strengths. This gets into the reason most people don't have a strategy. Humans are built to avoid discomfort, not seek it out and strategize around it. Which brings up the question, what is the hardest thing about being a successful comedian? I don't think it's writing funny jokes, and I don't think it's performing live or the travel schedule or booking gigs or social media posts or even sticking to it when times get tough. I don't think excelling at those things gets you a popular Netflix special. I think the hardest part of being a comedian is being remembered. For years on my birthday, a group of friends and I would go to the comedy cellar below Washington Square Park. We'd watch nine comics tear the roof off for 90 minutes. Then we'd grab a drink next door and talk about the show. What I remember most about these debriefs is how hard it was to remember anything. We'd be able to recite maybe one killer joke. Maybe we'd even remember one comedian's name for a few minutes, but soon everything blurred together. The comics performed, they killed, and then they disappeared from our minds. Think about being a comedian in that environment. And you could say, well, they have social media, but that's even harder because now you're competing against all the comedians and general entertainment for Mindshare, not just the other eight comics that perform next to you that night. How the heck do you stand out and grow? You do what my sister's friend Jacqueline did, although we always knew her as Jackie. You build a strategy around the hardest thing, which is being remembered. So how can you ensure that you will be remembered? You make a show that's exceedingly easy to talk about. If your show is about one thing and that thing is taboo and rarely talked about, and it hits a soft spot for lots of people, it is way more likely to be remembered than a collection of random jokes ever will be. Jackie makes references that shoot out like octopus arms to different topics, but they always come back to that core theme. By the end of the show, anytime she starts a thread on something off topic, you can almost feel the tension in the crowd, the excitement and anticipation as they all simultaneously think, how the heck is she going to bring this one back? And then she does, and the payoff is huge. This takes enormous discipline. What if she thought up a hilarious joke about Biden or Trump or the economy or Kim Kardashian? Unless she can tie it into the bigger theme, she has to leave it out, no matter how funny. And I bet it makes it easier to write the jokes because she knows she has to tie them back. She has explicit boundaries to be creative within. If you watch 10 stand-up comics and one of them was Jackie, she's the one you'd remember. Not because she was objectively the funniest, but because she was the easiest to talk about and describe to a friend after the show. 
which means she's the one that's going to grow. She's the one that'll get a Netflix special and her Netflix special will outperform because when someone asks you the question, we all ask each other every time we see each other, seen anything good on TV lately, the easiest thing for you to talk about is that one comedy special about that one thing. You'll never believe it, you'll say. The entire show is about. I obviously have no idea if she did this on purpose. And of course, she's enormously talented and the work itself is great. But the strategy is why she's on Netflix. And now let's dive into the components of strategy so that you can create something just as effective for your startup idea. And while we hit on diagnosis, guiding policy, and coherent action, we're going to write a successful children's book. Hopefully. I haven't done it yet. Kind of putting a lot of faith in the system here. Well, we'll see how it goes after a little smooth jazz. Idea to Startup is brought to you by Tacklebox, an accelerator for people with ideas and full-time jobs. If you aren't sure what to do next, we've got a step-by-step process that's helped people build tons of businesses worth lots of money. It's got 25 hours of content, examples, and templates all organized in a tight seven-block path. If you get stuck and need feedback, I meet with founders personally every other week to organize sprints and help with tactics and approach. If you get lonely, we've got a bunch of other founders building alongside you. They're talented and driven and all an absolute delight. I handpick each one. If that's interesting, apply at gettacklebox.com. Bad strategy. You and I are going to write a successful children's book today. To start, we've got to define what success means. My answer is a book that sells, one that makes money. Now, there's obviously no worse way to start any sort of business, book or not, than with that goal. If your top goal is to make money, you've all but ensured yourself that you're not going to. Money is a side effect of solving a problem that matters. So a better way to put it is we want this book to create value. It needs to solve a problem. That is the other side of the value coin. Value is only derived from a problem, and the potential for value is commensurate to the painfulness of that problem. The more pain, the higher potential for value. So we've got to figure out a problem that's a bit painful. But why a children's book in the first place? In a roundabout way, because of my wife. Books are the most common present people get the little guy. He's got mountains of them and he loves them. But we'll get gifted two or three or five copies of the same book. And often that book objectively stinks. And I can't wrap my head around how the heck all these awful books landed in the gift rotation. The other day, the little man scooted over with one of his favorite books, a brutal number we have multiple copies of. As I slogged through it, my wife said, Well, if that book is so bad, why don't you write a better one? So that's one reason. And the second reason is that it's sometimes easier to see strategy clearly when it's not in a startup. We do a lot of startup examples, and we'll get back to startup examples next week. But we'll try something a little different today in hopes that it sparks something in you. Back to strategy. I like to follow the advice of Charlie Munger when I can. One of my favorites from the late great investor is to avoid stupidity rather than seek brilliance. So before we build our strategy, we'll start by examining common examples of bad strategy we can steer clear of. Rumult defines four common examples of bad strategy, and founders consistently fall for each. The first bad strategy Rumult calls fluff. He uses the term Sunday words, which I got a real kick out of for some reason, to describe the ambiguous strategy descriptors that most people come up with. I hear these constantly. It's the founder who is going to be customer-centric or data-driven or empathetic or build a product that's beautifully designed and thinks that those are strategies. 
These are all objective and fluffy and, more importantly, not a direct reaction to the critical problem you're looking to face, which is what strategy is supposed to be. Which leads us to bad strategy number two, failure to face the challenge. This is an early stage standby. I see this with founders building a SaaS tool who think the challenge is tech or fundraising and spend their time working with a dev shop or tweaking their pitch deck, or with founders who think the design of their website is the critical piece or that their social media is going to be the unlock. Misdiagnosing what actually matters is a disaster. Luckily for early stage startups, it's rarely rocket science. The biggest challenge is understanding the status quo. What exactly your best potential customer does now to solve the problem you've picked and how you can get them to stop doing that and start working with you instead. Finding their job to be done, how they make decisions, who they look to for advice. A good strategy is built around an initial search, you uncovering an insight into a specific customer and then organizing all of your efforts around that insight. Something you've got an unfair advantage on because it's overlooked or underappreciated. Correctly calling out the challenge is a necessary step of a successful strategy, and it rarely happens. The next bit of bad strategy is mistaking goals for strategy. We've touched on this. It's saying your strategy is to get into Y Combinator, or to get a quick MVP out then raise a seed round, or to get to 10k in monthly recurring revenue. Lots of bad strategies are, as Rumelt says, just statements of desire rather than plans to overcome obstacles. The last one he highlights is called Bad Strategic Objectives, another classic. Whenever I chat with new founders, I always ask what they think their biggest challenge is going to be. Then I ask what they did this past week. The answer is always something like, well, I think the biggest challenge is going to be finding customers, and last week I spent time getting our legal ducks in a row. It might seem like that's not that tragic a use of time. You do need those legal ducks eventually, right? But the problem is there's always going to be some form of legal ducks that need to get rowed, and nearly every one of those, well, we have to do this at some point, tasks are irrelevant if you can't figure out how to navigate the big obstacle. You don't have time or bandwidth to work on anything except identifying and then navigating that core obstacle. Everything else is a treacherous waste of time. If I had to sum up bad strategy for early stage entrepreneurs in one word, it would be avoidance. Avoiding thinking of strategy in the first place, avoiding finding the actual obstacle, and then avoiding work that navigates it. All of that still feels a bit fluffy to me, so I'll try to pull it together for you with a quick example. GoPro. About a year ago, I was in a coffee shop with a friend. We got seats at the window and were watching the traffic when a skateboarder flew by, his body lurching back and forth as he zigged and zagged through cars like his feet were glued to the board. He had a GoPro on his head, and we commented on how cool that video probably was before my friend said, how the heck is GoPro still in business? The answer is strategy. When they were starting out, they realized that the most important part of their business wasn't video quality. It was mounts. If they wanted to grow, they had to navigate the hurdle of helping people capture incredible action footage. And that came down to securing the camera on all sorts of things. A bike helmet, a surfboard, a long stick for a snowboarder. They poured their resources into innovative, waterproof, crash-proof mounts. The camera components they used were stock, off-the-shelf. It didn't matter. They were commodities. The mounts, though, did, because those were a differentiator for their customer. This strategy, pick a customer, the adventure extreme sports nut, 
recognize that getting them footage would give them a giant status level jump, and then tackling that challenge head on with innovative camera mounts flowed through the company. The camera was designed with the mounts in mind, as was the software and the video and the marketing. Further, each step they took towards that customer pushed competitors in the opposite direction. Each custom mount made the strategy harder to compete with. Teams that organized around the best video quality couldn't possibly spend the same amount of time or resources or bandwidth on mounts as GoPro could. And that is what a strategy does. It finds something unique, something that matters, and leans into it harder than any competitor can. A great piece of business advice I got one day was to find something simple that matters and take it really seriously. And that is what a good strategy does. The alignment up and down your stack becomes impossible to copy. Every time you double down, you take a step forward and you push competitors a step back. And, of course, a strategy makes it clear who you're building for, and a brand is created as a result. That is why GoPro's brand is so strong. Great strategy leads to brand. Brand itself is not a strategy. Now, let's write a book. The Kernel our book strategy will start with the three parts of the kernel Rumelt describes. Diagnosis, guiding policy, and coherent actions. We start with diagnosis. For startups, diagnosis is about understanding the current landscape, evaluating the different types of potential customers, what problems they have, how they see the problem, how they solve it. You're searching for behavior you can latch onto through tactics like customer interviews and ethnographic research. For the book, this meant I needed to do a little bit of investigation, a search for current behavior. I started with the books I'd been gifted, the books I'd given as gifts, and a text to a bunch of parent friends. I did this after I realized that we'd literally never, not once, bought our own book. We never had to. I asked my parent friends, quote, what children's book have you gifted in the past year? The responses came in. Parents gift two types of books. First, their kid's favorite book. These were eclectic and had no pattern. Second were the books with jobs, and these were eerily consistent. The book that came up the most is called Go the F to Sleep, which is a cheeky nursery book about a kid that won't go to sleep. It has a bunch of curses, and it's hilarious. It's secretly written for parents, but you can still read it to your seven-month-old. People gifted this book at baby showers or whenever a friend said their kid was going through a rough sleeping patch. They gave this book frequently. The other books that were consistently gifted were specific too. One was for parents of twins, and one was for when a kid is going to have a baby brother or sister. So here is my diagnosis. Books that grow reliably have jobs. They exist for a specific moment in time that is important and recognizable and relatable for parents. The hard thing about writing a children's book then isn't the writing or the illustration or the characters. It's creating a trigger that reminds a parent to gift it. And after a few conversations, I landed on a potential one. When I asked parents about moments that stuck out for them over the first few years of their kids' lives, a bunch mentioned the first day of preschool. It was a moment full of mixed emotions. They were sad about their kid leaving for a part of the day. They were nostalgic for the younger days. And also, they're guilty because they're a little excited for a bit of freedom. I think I can write a book around that, one that speaks directly to parents in that moment, similar to the Go the F to Sleep book, one that's in on the joke. Now, guiding policy. 
Once you diagnose the situation and realize what obstacle you need to tackle, the guiding policy is the how. Ideally, you've got an unfair advantage here. But just having a guiding policy at all will lead to its own advantage. GoPro diagnosed the need for mounts, and their guiding policy was to build these mounts, to focus on them and prioritize them over everything else. For the book's guiding policy, my advantage is that I know how to run tests and get stuff in front of people quickly. It's what I do for a living. So I'll treat it like a startup. I'll test out potential moments with customers to see if they trigger people to buy and gift before I even write a line of the book. I'll do it a bunch of times because I know the most important part of a successful book is one that triggers people to gift. This guiding policy ties to the final element of our strategy, coherent action, the actual tactics. I'd get a website up and out fast with a pre-order button. I'd assemble a group of parents to read drafts and give feedback and chat about their experiences as kids left for preschool. I'd find unique digital and physical channels to see the early growth. I'd test out things like bulk orders to mimic the people who kept five or 10 copies of the book on hand. Once I had the moment that resonated, then I'd hire an illustrator and figure out editing and publishing the least important bits of the book strategy. Ideally, this leads to a book that grows organically, one that's successful. The End and You Obviously, the children's book is a bit of a silly example, but hopefully it makes it easier to see the lessons. If you're writing a children's book, you don't want to just compete on having the best story or the best illustration or the best social media account. Those are games you're going to lose. If you're starting a business, you don't want to compete with someone else's strategy. You don't want to do the comfortable things that make you feel good, but don't push you on the actual pivot point of the business. You don't want to compete on commodities, places you're going to lose. You want to choose where you've got an advantage and align everything you do behind that. That is a strategy. So what's that mean for you? What is the critical obstacle you need to navigate? How are you going to tackle it in a unique way? And are you maybe an illustrator? I kind of talked myself into this book idea. This was the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head over to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and can be working on your idea for the weekend. Have a great week.